the visualization piece, I don't think enough people do that. It's, it's such a powerful piece and every leader I would recommend should look at coaching. Hello, it's Andrew May and welcome to another edition of the Strive Stronger podcast, where we pull apart those two words, strive from the French word estrave, which means pushing through challenging times and coming out the other side, and stronger. It's all about being stronger physically, psychologically, emotionally, financially in every part of our lives. Blair Crawford is the founder and CEO of biometric identity company, Daltry. Have you ever forgotten a username, a password, an access card or a pin code? As I'm saying that, Wizard is in the studio nodding profusely. Daltry's mission is to redefine how identity is used and to eliminate the authentication conversation altogether. Blair also sees it as his responsibility to make sure the team at Daltry are happy and inspired by their work. And I'm going to definitely dig deep on both of those points. Hailing from Glasgow, Blair is an avid hiker and a camper vanner. He hosts his own podcast called Identity Today, and he's a massive advocate for coaching Blair arrived in Australia as a backpacker. Who would have thought a Scottish backpacker? He then worked through a range of traditional backpacking jobs before finding his way into biometrics and identity management. That's not a normal career path, and I'm really curious to find out about that. Blair Crawford, welcome to the podcast. What an introduction. Fantastic to be here. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. We haven't rounded that accent out yet, have we, in Australia? No, they've tried their best, but I do refer to this as a bit of an international version of Scottish. And every time I go back to uh, the homeland, I am quickly reminded that I don't sound like I should. Um, But after a couple of beers, I can certainly get back to where it needs to be. (laughs) Awesome. Now, normally with a a founder like you and a startup guy, it would be, let's start with the founder story and all the entrepreneurial stuff, but that would be a little bit too predictable. So I'm really curious about biometrics. I studied a little bit in sports science player. You would have still been at probably primary school. So I thought a rough order today, let's go number one, biometrics, two, the founder story and, and your lessons in the startup world. Three, selling, because I know you love selling and and you've had to adapt the way you sell in the current environment. Let's talk about resilience number four. And five is we'll do what's called the mad minute. I ask you a bunch of questions. You just rattle off an answer and we probably won't be able to understand any if you go back to the native tongue. But let's start with biometrics. Uh, My dictionary search tells me it is a noun. Biological and behavioral characteristics of an individual from which distinguishing repeatable biometric features can be extracted for the purpose of biometric recognition. That sounds like an academic, and they've given that definition. So, Blair, my first foray into biometrics was my first degree in exercise science and sports coaching. So, from that, I understand you know, biometrics is about heartbeat, DNA, and fingerprints. And in recent years, we've added facial recognition, gait, that's an interesting one, voice odor and and a whole lot more so there's my really rough understanding of biometrics how close how far am i from it i mean i think you're spot on i mean that is the academic um definition of what biometrics are and you've got various disciplines which will look at biometric information um including sports signs you know looking at heartbeats looking at the electrical signals which can be picked up on watches or modern devices which are looking at fitness but then you've also got the biometric conversation as it relates to security things like passports how you can use that which is unique to you your eyes your face your fingerprint and your voice not necessarily for something like a sports science application but to actually prove your identity when you need to to do something whether it be going on holiday through the airport or in the case of daltrey 
getting people into the applications that they need to access to do their jobs. So yeah, the definition of biometrics is spot on. Where we're really focused though is about the utility of those biometrics. What is it you can do when you can digitize who a person is using those unique features to make their life better, but also to make their life more private and secure. And in turn, also improving the security of the businesses which deploy this technology as well. I said that tongue in cheek at the start when you you have a username to remember password, access card or pin code. And I called out wizard, but I should have said myself because I'm sure there's so many people listening to this are going, oh my God, is it my mother's maiden name? And the first dog I had, which was Radar, was it the cat that we had? So it just, it gets so cumbersome and we've got more touch points, more digital touch points. Do you really think we will get to this futuristic vision like Gattaca where it's all on a screen, it's touchpad or through the iris? And if so, how far away? I think we're there. To be honest, I mean, most people will use biometrics in their daily life. Apple really drove the mass penetration of it from a consumer perspective by putting originally the the, the fingerprint readers into the mobile devices. And then, of course, the advent of Face ID into the mobile devices. So I think from a consumer perspective and really driving that convenience narrative, we're way down the path and there's lots happening in that space, which is going to be to the betterment of the people who use it in their day to day. Where we're really starting to, where adultery is really focused, is bringing a more enterprise and government grade version of biometrics. And I say that from a security perspective, as well as a user experience perspective at scale into day to day operations. Um, when it comes to working. One of the things which has really driven the advancement of the use of technology across government and workforce has been the pandemic. So there was already an accelerated movement towards um, people working from anywhere. But obviously, when everybody works from anywhere on a much more frequent basis than they ever did before, that really made it important for organizations to be able to prove who is actually authenticating into their businesses. But also from the user's perspective, it made it really important for them to be able to use security technology, which didn't get in the way of them doing their job. So um, from a consumer perspective, we're way down the path. From a workforce perspective, um, we're starting to see some hockey stick action in terms of adoption. So we go hockey stick, beautiful segue into the couple of questions I wanted to ask you. What do you think it's going to look like in five years to, to 10 years? And what's it going to look like for our children? So talk to me a day in the life of either working from home or in an office. Let's go first of all with five years. Uh, five years, I believe a large percentage of people will permanently work at home. And what we'll start to see is that the generations which start to come into the workforce will be, um, how do you say this, work from home native. So we start to talk about, you know, my generation and the, the younger generations as being digitally native. We're going to have this work from home native. And I don't think it will be called that necessarily. It's going to be probably something more around, you know, the hybrid aspect of it or work where you need to. But certainly in five years, this will be so normal, but it will be probably much more integrated and holistically considered in terms of processes, new ways of working. I think people will probably be more used to creating relationships digitally. I mean, I know we've spoken about what you get from digital relationships and in terms of the speed to connect and discuss things, but also what you lose because you don't get that human connection. So I think people will probably be consulting about how to fill the gap that 
will inevitably occur um, if a lot more people are working from home permanently. We're pretty well the same generation, you and I, if we add like about 13 or 14 years on top. So um, <laughs> I'm a very different generation to you. Uh, do you see the uptake on this uh, struggle for like I'm, a, I'm in my late 40s. So my kids are getting mobile phones. Archie's year five. He's got a dumb phone because he's at soccer four days a week. So he just does text and calls. I got my first mobile at 21. My parents got their first mobile at 40. Uh, I fixed up dad's flashing microwave a couple of years ago and you know, did the time. And then dad went, oh, Sue, no, did, did you realize this is a clock? So he'd had video recorders and everything way back. He'd never knew it was a time. So when the technology train took off, let's say Trev was on the wrong platform. So do you think this is going to be an us and them? Is it going to be a digital generation versus people who've missed the train? Or is this something that's going to be so much easier, so much more adaptable that everyone will just do, will get into biometrics and maybe not even know? Yeah, I mean, I think that example with the mobile phones is quite poignant because that did feel like an, an us and them. It's like digitally native and then, you know, grandparents and a lot of them did jump onto it, but still their usage of that digital channel was not what it would be if a young person had a mobile phone. It was it was quite a limited utility, generally speaking, that they would use, you know, FaceTime, maybe some apps and things like that. But I do think that this because we're progressing down the digital pathway, the new technology which is emerging right now, I don't think that the generations are going to be so se as separated because the penetration of digital um, capability across a wider set of the population is increasing over time. So we're not filling as much of a gap. I mean, we started to see iPhones be introduced to um, to industry, that was like a game-changing capability that was put in the hands. You'll notice now that when a new iPhone's released, it's kind of commoditized to an extent. We're talking about slightly improved picture quality and stuff like that. So or another camera. They're going to have eighteen cameras camera. in twenty years, adding a camera a year. So I don't think it's the gaps. But what I would say to to bring it back to the to new technology is even if you look at what's going on with cryptocurrency and the decentralized finance movement. The young generations are thinking about finance in a completely different way than, than the older generations. And we're probably not putting any brackets around that, who they are in terms of where the age fits into it. But some of the really young people, you know, they're 16, 17, 18, who are starting to think about financial planning at that age, they're talking about it in a way which is so unfamiliar to those who are, um, you know, uh, they've got their mortgage, they're paying it off, they're in their 40s, their 50s, their 60s, potentially, generally speaking. But in saying that, those generations are also dabbling a little bit in cryptocurrency. I think 10 years ago, if you were to take a 60-year-old and introduce them to the concept of a cryptocurrency as their knowledge of digital ecosystems existed at that point, that would really feel like la-la land. But I think, the as I said a moment ago, the general capability around digital ecosystems and the evolution of what it means for us is uplifting. So those gaps may not be as big anymore um, across the different age brackets. But I mean, I don't have any evidence in that. It's probably just a bit of a feeling. Well, when you run a business like that, it's good evidence, isn't it, that it's growing in that direction. You want to be yeah. on the top end of the hockey stick rather than the reverse end. Agreed. How did you get interested in biometrics? I can't imagine a young fellow growing up in Glasgow 
would be sitting around the school playground having a large conversation around biometrics. It would probably be around, or do, are you Celtics or Rangers, first of all? We've got to get that clear. Family is Rangers. Okay. So did you um, go with the grain or did you go against the grain? No, you wouldn't do that. <laughs> you get ostracized <laughs> off the family inheritance. That be, that's, not, that's not something that you really have a choice in, to be honest. Okay. Um, but I have to say, I've not really followed the football back at home for a long time since I came out here. But my dad was a big Rangers man. You know, he used to take us to games when we were younger. And all my mates back at home are, generally speaking, um, Rangers fans as well. So, um, well, yeah, it's called the internet and you get it when you fly now. So on the way home, you know, good, good advice. Just get on the internet and you can talk about what's happening. Pick that up. But... But that question, where did this interest come from? I was trying to follow the thread, thinking about your life growing up in Glasgow. I've been there like as a backpacker, so it's a very different experience to living there. But you came out here, backpacking jobs, fruit picking, what were you doing? Tour guide? I actually skipped fruit picking. So my first job here was I uh, worked for a company called Aussie Farmers Direct. Do you remember them? Mm. So they... um. What they did, this was up in Brisbane. So what they did was they took produce um, fresh from the farmers and they delivered it to people's homes directly. And it was meant to be able to support local farmers and not have the large supermarkets kind of doing that price pressure thing. So I used to go door knocking and it was unbelievable when you think about it from a privacy perspective. So I'm a backpacker rocking up to people with a clipboard on paper, taking, you know, do you want milk? Do you want what, fruit and veg? A couple of steaks a week, whatever. Taking their credit card details on the door and it would be delivered to them. Eventually I found myself all those different types of jobs that backpackers do, which were fantastic, by the way. We had an amazing time. But I eventually found myself working for a conference company in Sydney. So I worked on the sponsorship team uh, eventually. And really that's where I started to, I knew I was always at a general interest in technology, but I started selling sponsorship packages to tech companies. In order to do that, I really had to understand their markets. I really had to understand how the marketing teams within these tech companies were trying to engage. And then I started to really build my perspective around what technology and trends were being seen. Now, biometrics had nothing to do with it, to be honest. I never did a biometric conference. But artificial intelligence, security, cyber, all these types of things were constant threads. I actually decided to leave that company. I got a bit homesick, if I'm honest, and I decided to um, go back to Scotland. I had big plans to get into tech back in the UK. Um, I had some visa issues here, so it was pretty hard to actually get into a company. But long story short, I didn't get on the plane. It was all very dramatic. Um, my bags were on the plane. I was ready to, to go departures. And um, yeah, just had a feeling that my time was not up here. So I got the bags off the plane. Um, I had a really kind of interesting period of trying to make some money and to find myself a way into tech. So I did removals for a bit, um, furniture removals. Now, I'm not really built for furniture removals, but that was quite the experience until I found a company which eventually introduced me to an organization which was selling biometrics. So there was a lot of grunt work. There was a lot of curiosity. It was a lot of these things interest me and that interest me. But there was something about biometrics. And I think it was probably the curiosity linked to watching movies like Mission Impossible and Demolition Man. Like to actually have exposure to the tech all of a sudden. And to hear there were jobs out there where people sold this stuff, I was hooked. I mean, little did I know that it would take me on the journey that it did. But you're right. I didn't leave Glasgow and go on this journey and be like, I'm going to be in biometric um, identification. It was probably accumulation of 
bit of hustle, bit of curiosity, and then some fortune being um, being exposed to a uh, to a technology which yeah has become a big part of my life. Interesting when you find out people's pathway. It is very rarely oh, epiphany. Going to set up a biometrics company. Bang, we've done it. I love the book Range by David Epstein, where he talks about what you do helps you, and you have no idea about this in five, ten, fifteen years. So the door knocking was invaluable for you to understand sales and knockback and how to eyeball someone and have a conversation. And then you find yourself in a company selling, but then you pick up the technology and then you go further and further. And then after a while, and even backpacking, right, when you meet people and you have to sell yourself and you know people can read between the lines on that, it, it helps then when you do stumble into business and you've had this conditioning and then you just draw upon that. Absolutely no doubt about it. I mean, I think even if I take a step back from what I experienced door-to-door selling, I, my first job was actually in Pizza Hut. So I was a waiter. I was McDonald's, lawnmowing oh. in McDonald's. But there's there's customer service. You know, that's where you really learn to speak to people. And I worked in Mexican restaurants. I did all sorts of stuff around Glasgow Pizza Hut and Mexican restaurants. And I think you're absolutely spot on. Once you... Because that's a, I mean, they're hard gigs. I mean, you have to, I really enjoyed them. And I, it was tied to a whole lot of other things. Like it was an adventure in Australia and it was meeting all these awesome Aussies and traveling all over the country doing these jobs when I got here. But when you actually look at it, I mean, that is a training ground for, you know, no's and really thinking about objection handling and perfecting your value proposition and also perfect, perfecting your hustle too. Because um, there's, the, there's got to be a bit, you've got to have a bit between the teeth in order to eventually do like what we've done and built a cybersecurity company. Absolutely. Beautiful segue into the founder story. So uh, the background makes sense, but then you arrive, you've got a business, you run into, you meet a guy named Hodjo or Craig Hodges, and then you set up a business about one week or a few weeks before lockdown in Australia. Great time, or maybe it is a great time to pick going into a cyber business. So pick up the thread, uh, the the evolution, putting the business together and where that was in context with COVID. I had been working, as I mentioned a few moments ago, for a biometric company, which was my introduction into the, the tech. And, you know, we did some fantastic things. We won some great projects, but there was an issue with the way that the biometric technology itself was being isolated from the wider cybersecurity problem, which was existing. And that was causing all sorts of issues. And Craig, as you mentioned, he was an investor in that business and he came into it and he spent a lot of time with me and I spent a lot of time with him. And we eventually got to the point where that business had real challenges in in being able to realize its vision and we didn't have control. He was a minority investor and I was a sales director, but I wasn't in charge. Real issues with being able to realize its vision. So we decided to, to step out and do it ourselves. So yes, the story goes that we launched it just before COVID. A couple of things which I think were positive in that regard. The first was that it actually became a really uh, economical way to reach out to people. Um, if you think about the cost of sale and that initial and um, initial phase where you're trying to tell people you've done something new, traveling around the road, meeting partners, making meeting clients, all the stuff that goes in with that. All of a sudden, everybody, senior people, were sitting in the same position, locked up in their house, and they were like, sure, I'll take a call from this random (laughs) biometric company in Sydney, um, and I'll hear about what they've said, uh, what they have to say and what they have to offer. 
So we actually got amazing exposure over a short period of time to, you know, your big accountancy and um, uh, firms, to your big tech integrators and to customers directly themselves. And it meant that we could take a lot of their feedback into the very early stages of the product development lifecycle in a very commercially viable way. It also drove the narrative. We knew there was a trend coming around cybersecurity and biometrics. Obviously, the core value proposition of the business was to be able to authenticate people securely. But in terms of a catalyst for needing to do that and that hockey stick requirement, clearly um, what we're experiencing now, it was a good thing. It was a good thing in terms of the requirement. It highlighted the problems that existed with identity and probably exacerbated how serious they were. But we're always careful. You know, we don't want to celebrate the fact because COVID was a disaster for so many businesses. And it certainly caused some massive challenges for us and things to navigate, um, which I'm sure we'll get into in a minute. So there was pros and cons. I think there were a lot of pros in the early stages, but certainly COVID for business and generally um, operating. I don't think, you know, I don't think anyone would really say in the majority that it was a good thing. But interesting how you've used that as an advantage because you've got all these directors and decision makers and buyers who are suddenly available, whereas when they were in their big offices or ivory towers, they've got lots of gatekeepers around them. So you could just get immediate access. Well, what I want to know, and especially I'm sure listeners are thinking, yeah, cybersecurity, get it. What does a contract look like? And you don't have to share your, your latest annual report with us. I'm sure you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> but, but what does a contract look like with a big company? And is this a, a service that just hasn't existed? Is, it, is this a totally new service in the last couple of years? Yeah, I mean, biometrics, generally speaking, has existed. And if you Google biometrics, you'll get 10,000 companies. One of the big things which has happened, though, in the experience, I've sold biometrics across Australia, New Zealand, the Middle East, um, the UK and the US. And one of the major issues which existed with the technology was that it was always being deployed as a point solution. So it was like these multi-million dollar tenders would come out or projects to have Irish recognition to get into a particular facility across um, a country, you know, whether it was corrections or something like that. But inevitably, someone else in the department or the large business, whoever bought it, would say, hey, can we get some of that biometric stuff you just spent millions of dollars on? And it hadn't been designed in such a way where it could be deployed outside of that functional application it had been designed for in the first place. So to your question, it's totally new in that with all of the experience and all of the things which were happening around the cyber physical threat environment, being able to pull something together that really addressed the need to have a biometric technology which was safe and secure and deployable as a core asset in your operation and then used over time where you need to, that's a massive leap forward for the, for, for the industry and for the technology itself. Decoupling it from the functional applications, massive. As I said, there used to be the biometrics was embedded into the application, visitor management, um, prisoner movement, the financial services, Bringing it away from that so you can allow for application innovation at the edge still to occur, but then make sure that it's compliant with the core identity strategy, which is biometrics. That's a big thing which we focused on. A lot of which comes into making that possible is you know, adherence to standards. I always talk about how we've moved biometrics away from the Wild West type situation it was, making sure we're really careful and considerate of people's privacy, um, which is super important, uh, and then ultimately being able to to, to put forward the utility that the technology promises when you get it right. 
hope that answers your question. Yeah, it's it's great. And, and I've got a follow-up on from one of your co-founders slash investors, Hodjo. Here we uh, go. I, <laughs> it could go anyway, right? I, I, I sent him a message saying, oh, could you give me a couple of questions or a bit of guidance to ask the young fella? And, and Hodjo said, number one, the really unique thing about Blair is he's a born salesman, but unlike anyone I've ever worked with, he can do the weeds. I haven't worked out how he does that. And that does come across to me. You can go deep and you've got the knowledge and you really get into the intricacies, but you can have fun and look at big picture as well. So have you always been like that? Can you occupy both spheres, the visionary, up in the clouds, getting excited, but then get down right into the detail and the miniature? I was a bit of a tinkerer when I was um, younger. I used to like build computers and dabble in coding. And I was pretty good at coding when I was in high school. I think I was... I think I could have been aligned to a technical pathway. I could talk about this actually this part all day because it's one of my one of the challenges I see in the education system, which I want to be able to address at some stage. But the guidance that I was given when I was younger was to go down a business pathway. All the evidence suggested that I was probably suited for a technical pathway and my interests and all my grades and things. But for some reason, I was given this advice to go and do business. So I think that that and I took that and face value and I went and done it and um, there's probably a couple of lessons there but I think my brain was kind of wired towards technology but through going down a business pathway and at the right time I managed to kind of harness both of them to an extent now I'm obviously not as technical as the devs in here the engineers and the cryptographers and all that stuff are unbelievable I also think my dad had a big part to play in it he was a natural sales guy as well and my brother he's a natural sales guy too we love to talk about the value that something can provide I do have to say it was probably one of the things that when the when the business got going though it's definitely something that i had to consider in more detail that context shifting going from a technology meeting to you know a presentation to a sales meeting to a finance meeting and um, because you do have an affinity to get into the detail and probe and ask the questions but sometimes you don't need that so i mean one of the things i worked on is with a coach you know has been able to do that that context shifting and that mindset shifting and deploying tools well, we're getting advanced now. That's why I'm, I'm looking at you going, yeah, keep going. I want to really double click on this because a lot of leaders haven't learned that. And a lot of entrepreneurs and startups and, and leaders of big companies that I, I'm blessed with my job to work with a lot of high performers. And they've, they've focused on domain expertise. In, in your world, it's to focus on biometrics. And then before a presentation, it's the slide deck. And, and, and the latest content, but you're, you're having a total shift. So I call this state management, how you shift your physical, your psychological and emotional state. So you turn up for what matters. So yeah, keep going. How, what did your coach do with you or what, what have you learned to, to occupy those two different worlds? In that particular example, one of the things that we were working on was I had, a, had many more presentations in front of, you know, 200, 300 people or whatever it was. And they were coming up more frequently, but the detail of the business was was um, was what it was. We focus quite a lot on visualization techniques. So one of the things that I worked on with my coach was, you know, thinking about times where you were at your best in those situations that we can try and bring you back to and do that state shifting. So <laughs> I picked a few scenarios which I try and bring myself back to. One was a best man speech that I did for my mate Stuart. Because that had humor in it. You know, there's a bit of confidence. You know, I did a couple of whiskeys before it. So, you know, there was that general aura of being able to present. Did you but watch another... Four Weddings and a Funeral? Did you take the Hugh Grant, no, no. <laughs> Hugh Grant line of attack? 
<laughs> I didn't know. It was um, he, he still reminds me of it though. He doesn't. He wasn't best pleased. But anyway, I won't go into the detail of that on this. But the other state that was obviously quite a you're trying to be affable and funny in those types so, of so, scenarios. So, 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 just a little bit of that. So you 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 made. You, you you nailed him, so he, he maybe thought you could have edited it a little bit. But you, did you think it was a great performance? So is, is I that, did, yeah, yeah, and that's and that for the purposes of this visualization, that's the everyone was laughing. You know, I felt really comfortable. I felt really confident. So it was trying to harness that particular feeling. Haven't spoken um, to him since, but geez, it was no, a good no, no, it's a great press. I think there's a video somewhere. Maybe I'll get it for you. <laughs> Um, and then the second one, which was more aligned to the business, we had like a lot of pride in the team, right? They've what they've been able to do with a relatively conservative budget for a cyber tech company is nothing short of remarkable. And I remember we did a presentation where we had our investors, sorry, we had a meeting um, in our offices with our investors, with our team members off, and many of them we had just met for the first time because they flew in and we hadn't seen them because of COVID, and. I, I presented the journey to them and the detail of what we had actually done. And sometimes when you're in the weeds, you can't really recognize it. But I wanted to give some feedback about what outsiders are recognizing about what they've been able to achieve. So that was the second example that, you know, in terms of, um, I suppose, bringing us some pride about what we've done in the company, um, been able to present and, and, and to a wide audience, people who actually care and it means something to them. And then the visualization piece was in that state shift, as, as you were talking about, how when you've just come out of a deep tech meeting or you've got a particularly significant challenge you've got to navigate, how at the click of a finger, you can start to bring back that feeling of, okay, I need to present now. And that was a big thing for me over the last, I mean, I've done that for a while now, but I don't, and I, to your point, I don't think enough people do it. I think they think it's like, it's it's such a powerful piece and every leader I would recommend should look at coaching. Every leader, every world-class athlete, even some of the athletes I work with who are world-class and you start doing this stuff, it's foreign to them. It really is. So I commend you and I'm, I'm positively you know, surprised that you've done this, but I'm not. It's it definitely underpins some of the success you've had because visualization, which is part of imagery, so the, the, the broader category is imagery where you use a multi-sensory approach to predict future performances. And then when you get there, the theory is you then tap into your sight, you can hear, you can taste, talk about olfactory response, gustatory, what's happening in your stomach, that feeling. And whereas with just visualization is the eyes only. So that's why we get into the deeper. So when I, again, work with an athlete, if they're making a debut or a big championship, you're there, the crowd's roaring, you know, people are sledging you. So you, you bring it live. And when it works, oh, it's awesome, Blair, because you get athletes and, and some of my execs saying, it was like I was there before I was there. Yes. So then when you get there, you can focus on the presentation, not the nerves and the insecurity and the anxiety running through your system. So I love him. I could talk about this all the time. And it's what I love about podcasting. I had no idea we'd be talking about higher order mental skills so early. Neither did I, but here we go. <laughs> what else did you do with your coach? Or what else have you done in, in that, that broad range of mental skills? I think one of the other things which is important for anyone who's starting a business, especially now is to make sure that they set boundaries across uh, around the things which are important to them so it was interesting with my coach when i because I've, I've had a coach for probably four years or so so really preparing because i knew eventually i would start something craig was a big catalyst as this i actually said to someone earlier on they were asking about the impact of craig and i was like 
Craig's the kind of person that the busier the road is, the more likely he is to jaywalk. And I think that <laughs> I think that represents business, like all these obstacles and blah blah blah. You've got to go straight at it. But I am. Um, Can you just back, back up the truck a little bit? Because I know how old you are. So you got a coach in your early thirties getting ready yeah. for a business. Now, for any executive, any of our executives listening to this, and if you're in your fifties and you're just dallying with getting a coach, just do it. Like seriously, what are you waiting for? Hundred percent. In your early thirties, that's that's great foresight. That's that's really it is higher order. Confidence as a construct is two things. Number one, it's doing the work, and then it's backing yourself. So I think, and now I'm sort of analysing you, putting you there and looking at the sports psychology frameworks. So you had this gut feeling, this intuition that you were going to go into business, but you needed to do the work first. So you reverse engineered it. Yeah, I mean, I had a, a strong feeling and I think there's a couple of catalysts for it. I knew that I wanted to do something that's probably been in me for a while. But then it was one of the other things that was missing aside from that preparedness. And initially, um, initially the preparedness with the with the coach was to get me to a much more senior position in the business that I was at. That was step one. And then eventually um, in my mind, uh, I would have a business. But the other part aside from that, that I knew that I needed was the right people around me because one of the things which I think is a massive mistake is that people think they have all the answers. And I think that especially those who have started businesses in the last couple of years, if you thought you knew all the answers during a time like this, you probably really, really struggled with um, surviving, which is sad because amazing ideas probably went down the toilet. So the second part to that is I knew that and Craig came across at the right time. And I think that I was probably primed to to latch on to that. And there's a couple of other you know, people had been exposed to, but, but certainly Craig, he was a big catalyst there as well. That I was, I was ready to find, if I can put it like that. Yeah, well, you're open to it and then it comes along. And that's another construct on mental skills is around connection, the ability to connect with others and work as a team. And it really is part of mental skills because the sum of the parts becomes a much greater whole. And you find if people are just very me, insular, I, they can get to a certain level, but they tap out. And, and they often get a myopic view as well. Hey, I've just got to ask one other question on this. So you've spoken about how you get yourself up for what I call performance moments, a presentation, an investor meeting, a roadshow, and you've done the imagery. What do you do to downregulate? Because that's a really important part in shifting state. And when you're running a business like you are, and it's you know, the, the higher up you go, Blair, the more performance moments you have in a day, right? When you're the CEO of a large bank, they might have 14, 15, 20 performance moments. And it's it's getting into state is one thing, but how they downregulate or have little micro breaks is another whole different area. Yeah, I mean, and I, I suppose when I really finished what I was saying there, I, got, I distracted myself. The boundaries piece was about making sure I understood what was important to me. So, you know, the work piece, the personal relationships that I had, you know, with friends, you know, romantic relationships with partner, my personal environment, my hobbies, all the other things which make up your pie, really understanding and being aware if they started to become out of whack. And um, I did this really, like, it's a really simple illustrative exercise where you, you know, you have a circle with spokes on it and you write all the things which are important to you and then you grade them zero. Um, like, I've got no availability of that right now to 10 where it's a big part of my life and quite quickly with adultery it can be 10 on work and then you can see all the other things which are of course suffering so 
that has been a really important part of making sure that I can remain at my best as far as possible, even when things get crazy stressful, obviously the things you have to do to, to maintain and build a business and raise money, et cetera, et cetera. But to your question, um, one of the things I do, which I think is amazing, is uh, meditation, like Vedic meditation. And um, using that to separate the parts of your day is um, unbelievably powerful. And it's not spiritual. I don't do it for that. The guy who trained me to meditate, he explained that as thinking about brushing your teeth. If you didn't brush your teeth twi twice a day, you wouldn't have a very nice you know, mouth. He's like, think about it as doing 20 minutes at the beginning and the start end of your day. And it's like brushing your Is teeth. It, do you do brain. 20 minutes at the start end end or have you shortened that? Yeah. No, I do 20 minutes. You lose the rhythm sometimes, which is more about a habit thing and a discipline thing. And that's just the reality of being human is definitely not perfect. Try and do it. The problem, the, the beginning of the day is super important. The one that is at most risk is if you work really long days and then it becomes quite difficult to separate the start and the finish. But there's one of the reasons, there's one of the things I do, say from exercise and things. And for anyone listening to this who goes, I don't have 20 minutes at the start and the end, you can fast track that through training, or you can do what we call micro recovery breaks, but a different podcast for another day. What happened in your childhood? And, and you can take an off ramp if you want, and just we can leave this one to go through to the keeper. But was there a significant event or events that made you so self-aware? Because I'll be frank, if most corporate workers were like you, I wouldn't have a business. It's funny, my brother, I said I was coming on this podcast and I was talking to my brother about it last night. He was back in Scotland. We were just on FaceTime. And we had a chat because we were quite similar. And we both said, we're not entirely sure because we didn't have a lot of structure, to be honest, from our mom, my mom and my dad. Like they let us do, we were well supported. We had an awesome childhood. You know, they looked after us. You know, we had a great school experience. It was a public school and it had some rough edges. But all in all, we didn't get a lot of discipline. And then where we got to last night was that I think our grandparents on my mother's side, they had way more structure and discipline for their kids, i.e. my mum. But they kind of mellowed out, I suppose, as they got older. So I think we got a balance of, this is where we got to last night, so it's interesting you asked this. We got a balance of a pretty free and open experience with our parents who let us discover and make our own mistakes. But then we got some of those wise old tales and lessons learned type things and a bit more structure and discipline from our grandparents. And I think there's something in that and we can't quite put our can't quite put our finger on it and then I think generally speaking that's from a family perspective um I think I was just lucky to be exposed to some really awesome people as I as I grew up um from a business perspective and, and Glasgow what what experience has that had on you growing up in Glasgow oh, I wouldn't change it I miss it to be honest the humor the people a lot of what happens there it kind of there's a lot of history and culture, you know. Of course, you grew up there, all your all your your childhood mates are there. So I do. My mum reminds me that I was meant to only be here for ten months, um, and uh, it's now been eleven <laughs> eleven years. So yeah, I think it's important that you remember where you come from and you take those experiences. Don't get me wrong; there are some, you know, kind of rough parts to to some of the things you see, and it's got a completely different. Some of it's got a completely different uh, kind of side to it, but all of those things are good, you know, the street smartness. And I think people are really open as well in Glasgow. It was funny because it was once nominated the 
the, the most dangerous city in Europe in the same year it was um, voted the, the friendliest city in Europe. And Kevin... It depends <laughs> Kevin, on what side of the street you're on, right? And what jersey well, you're wearing. Well, Kevin, yeah, exactly. Kevin Bridges, a, a famous Scottish comedian, he made the joke that about that and he said, um, so if you get stabbed, the person that stabs you at least phone an ambulance after they've done it. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, um, yeah, we had, a, we had a good family and um, a lot of you know great things growing up. Um, holidays and all that type of stuff but it's funny I don't have a straight answer for that I don't know where it comes from and um, because I suppose I'm aware but I'm not that aware where I can really pinpoint you know I just am who I am now I suppose the other question Craig had for me is to ask you about the gobbles and I have no idea what that means but he just said make sure you ask him about the gobbles I don't know much about the gobbles he has looked at so it's an area in Glasgow it has a lot of character and a lot of things which, if you read the stories on the internet, make it sound like a particularly rough place to be. And Craig, for some reason, is obsessed with it and all of the kind of stories about it and the, the Glasgow in the olden days. And I link a lot, generally, a lot of these uh, cities in the UK. But, like, I've got a real... It's interesting because... I've got a real um, passion at some stage to help the kind of, like, it's generally speaking a lower, there's a lot of social economic issues in a lot of the cities around the UK. And I think there is probably a lot of work, and Craig feels the same as me, um, not speaking for him, to do with the young generations of kids that are coming out of some of these lower socioeconomic areas who don't necessarily get exposure to the opportunities and the ability to advance their talents in a way. That really bothers me to an, like a lot. We want to be able to, to contribute to addressing that at the right point with a with some sort of program. We've just become a B Corp, the first cybersecurity B Corp and sorry, the first cybersecurity technology vendor in Australia. That's a massive thing. That's for a us hell to, of a amount of work. I know people who've done that and it's it's huge. For a cyber company in its very early stages, the team have done an unbelievable job to do that. But to set purpose as a kind of anchor in your business um, it's been massive for the team members. It's been massive in terms of making sure we don't have high attrition rates. It's been massive for just giving people to nominate things which will fulfill them outside of just their day-to-day. -day. So going back to that, and he says, ask about the gorbals, but it's all connected to with this thing that we're creating, when it gets to a point where it can have real impact, what are the things that actually matter to us? And it's that younger generation that doesn't necessarily get in a lot of these UK cities, the exposures to opportunities that, that we might get in certain places around the world. Yeah, I'm particularly passionate about trying to help with that. And how many employees do you have? There's 40 of us now. And when you're tapping into that, that, that spirit, it's massive, especially for millennials, Gen Ys. It's, you know, what, 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 what do we contribute back to society? oh, by the way, what am I going to get paid? And what are you going to do for me? So that employee proposition has changed. They're very intelligent of you to connect into that straight away for the right reasons, but it's also a really good employee value proposition as you grow your business. There's my partner, Hannah, to be honest. She's amazing and she is extremely, well, she's very, very, she's the head of sustainability at Koala. Um, and she's been involved in a lot of impact-focused projects. Um, she's probably They've had busy. phenomenal growth. So if she's in charge of impact, she's she's, <laughs> she's ticked the job description. Yeah, She's doing an amazing, amazing job. And, and obviously through 
that and what she does and the work that she does at university and all her community projects, I've learned a ton. So good she, selection. <laughs> is that is that online? You can actually now, if you go on to uh, uh, any online dating app, you can also select career <laughs> and uh, you're wanting to get a mentor in the same process. Well done, you. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. You've gone red for anyone who's, who's <laughs> watching this in the video. So you flush. You've actually gone I'm really a, red. I'm actually thinking about, like, I had nothing. To, I didn't actually meet her on a dating app. I met her um, back in Glasgow. She's from London and she was up in um, Glasgow when I was back and she ended up coming over to Australia. So this was years ago, seven years ago. But yes, she's, um, she's a fantastic uh, advocate for impact. And she has taught us a lot, well, me a lot, which allowed me to then do I did here, I suppose. There's a thread through our relationship and listen to this back. And I'd say, are you, are you over that weirdness of listening to yourself back now you're doing podcasting or is it still a little bit weird when you listen back? I don't listen back that much anymore, to be honest. Um, I did listen to one earlier on because uh, people were commenting on it. So I wanted to hear it um, again. But Listen to this one back just for the, it's called lag time in coaching psychology. There's a how I see you and others perceive you, and there's how you see you, and and sometimes we are behind how others see us. So this is your experiment. This listen back and notice how many times you say the team they you're very collegiate, you're very respectful of other people, and it's never I. So you've really got this whole teamwork us build much more. When I spoke about that connectedness as a mental skill, so from your grandparents to your parents, they've done a good job on creating someone who really builds connection and collegiality and community and I'll go on the alliteration of the sea and that's going to lead to a whole lot more cash because we need to talk about selling. We do need to sell about selling. I, think I, I, I imagine a lot of people in tech don't like selling or it's different people who sell. No, I like selling. I like being customer facing. Is that going to change as the business grows, as you have more employees, more demands? I think it'll be a different type of sale. For me, I think it'll be inserted at different stages. It's important to still have founder-led sales at the early stage of the business. And I think, you know, I've lived and breathed this for a long time. I actually seen Gary Vaynerchuk. He had a good he had a good comment the other day in one of his LinkedIn posts. And he said, don't expect everybody to come up to the same speed and to work the same hours to learn your industry as you. It's not their business. And I think that's true. Yes, they're super committed it's different when you found something. There's just a different expectation you have to have on yourself um, about the, the hard yards you'll put in. But to your question, I think then I'm very involved because I need to share my knowledge and experience with them. And that takes time, which is fantastic. But eventually they'll become, and you can already see it, the maturity of the business is significantly improved as we, as we grow. Eventually I'll only be brought in for certain types of deals, but I also be more involved and I suppose the opening of new markets as we expand outside of Australia. So it will be a different type of proposition, which I'm taking to market. And the lessons you've had from your coach about, you know, call it state management, are invaluable for selling as well, because I've got two big sales opportunities next week. They've taken three or four months to line up. If I stuff up those two, it's going to take another three or four months to get opportunities of that magnitude. So you know exactly what I'm talking about when you look in your diary of the next few weeks and you see a really big fish. Being present for that is so important and, and bringing your best to that. 
question or, or, or subgroup I've got for you. Selling online, it's different. How have you adapted and what have you learned? I think that face-to-face meetings move to becoming like an earned experience. And what I mean by that is that the sales process is, is different than it used to be. I mean, I used to be a mad, we used to cold call. We still cold call. We still do nurture programs and all these types of things. But especially when you're selling to sizos and chief risks, they're like the most pitched people of all time. So you need to be able to, when you get in that meeting, be very quick at establishing whether there's a genuine hook and that is reciprocal in both sides. And it can be a little bit, there's two things I think about. For some reason, I think you can get into it quicker digitally, like into the topic and the content. There isn't that kind of weird room, what that weird going into a meeting room kind of small talk type stuff where it's like blah, 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 which is, is important. Do you use a presentation deck? Sometimes, but not all the time. It's I think a lot of our chats are kind of like what you've experienced and I've experienced from you and this is you kind of get into it, you talk about the problems and it can be very frank quite quickly, actually. And I think then what that's meant for selling is that you can, instead of wasting an hour to two hours on one call, like one meeting, because you have to travel and do all that stuff, you can quite quickly in 15, 20 minutes establish whether there is an actual reason to continue that engagement with this group of people. And uh, both ways, they can decide of you and you can decide whether that it's actually a point wasting energy if it's a definite no. But that for me then means that when you get to the actual detailed design of a solution because this is a complex sale there are many stakeholders and you do have to meet face to face that when you know when you're allocating that time in your diary that everybody's passed the test and accepted that this is something that we're all invested in and it's that's what i mean by earned face to face i'm just running a filter like n equals one my diary would back that up in the next few weeks, some of the face-to-face ones, we've got past go, we've got 200 bucks or we've worked together before. And I, I love sales meetings now virtual. When you're in high school, young fella, can you believe, it sounds like, yeah, when I was, my, my kids say to me sometimes, Blair, and I've got four. So uh, I, I often say I go to work to have a break. But tell us a story about the olden days, Dad. Well, here's one for you, kids. When, when, when Blair was in high school and Dad was running a wellbeing business back then called Good Health Solutions, I'd hop on a plane regularly and go to Brisbane or Melbourne or Perth or New Zealand or Singapore sometimes for a one-hour sales meeting. And I, th- I think about that now. I've lost weeks, probably months of my life doing that. But as a keynote speaker who loves speaking to people, not just on a computer screen, but in a live room, and now events are back, it's trying to get – we're trying to do this in the business, Blair, is get that blend between virtual, which when people are re- remotely dispersed is really easy, and then having some real life stuff. So I think we're all still trying to find that operating with them. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, I love the face to face. I mean, I'm in the office. I'm in the office four days a week. I need that social interaction. I don't want to have my life completely. I don't even have social media apart from LinkedIn because I have to, which drives me. I don't want it. But I, um, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I don't think, and I suppose going back to your point at the very beginning of this, where will things be in five years? I'm going to slightly contradict myself because I think a huge percentage of people will be working home at home on a much more permanent basis. But I also think there's a high chance that there'll be a reset where people think, actually, 
I'm really missing out on the proportion of social interaction that I'm having and the ability, do you know what's gone? This is a nightmare. The ability to tap when you work from home, the ability to tap someone on the shoulder and ask them a question. Instead, it has become, you have to book a meeting and I'm saying, well, the alternative to tapping someone on the shoulder is to pick up the phone. No one picks up the phone. It's weird. But that's where I think getting the operating rhythm right for your business, whether it's you know, two, ten, a thousand or fifty thousand, and we're seeing a lot of companies do this, and we've done this. We've got a couple of days in the week that we were in the office. We're all in here on a Monday, and then it's generally a Wednesday or a Thursday, depending on the delivery that week and the rest of the time at home. And I, and I, I do find that having that bookend, uh, Thomas, Wizards real name's Thomas, when we're in yesterday and we're doing some proposal and putting video stuff together, it's so much easier when you're collaborating, but on certain things. And then there's times where if I'm writing a, a, a new presentation or researching for a podcast or writing a book, I don't want to be near anyone. So I think getting that balance right is really important at the start of your week. I agree. And that's, I suppose, where I'm sitting and a lot of the team members sit in that hybrid workforce piece. I do think that's I suppose now I'm thinking about what that means for sales, though, because I don't know if it necessarily changes it, aside from the fact that the face-to-face meetings, you have to contend with the fact that the company which you're engaging with might not have adopted a hybrid way of working, and they may all be working from home, which means you're forced to do things like detailed design digitally, and then you lose that ability because the customer's way of working isn't hybrid. So that's what I, I think I'm going back to. And I don't want to labor on the point, but there's something about that, you know, earning and making it so worthwhile for people to meet face to face because it is obviously more advantageous for everyone to do that for a certain type of interaction. Um, but the answers will come out over time, I'm sure. Yeah, I like that. I'm going to reflect more on that in my diary moving forward as well. Like, um, and I'm just going to run a bit of a filter on it. And I, I think, well, I know my EA, Todd, because I am asking him for this, especially if it's briefing meetings for keynotes, it's never live now. It's always done virtually. Yeah. So it probably means the bigger stakes meetings, when you've earned that, you are going to be face-to-face. One final question on sales. Someone starts with you next week. You sit them down and they say, big dog, look around from Mars. Can you give me your biggest tip on selling? What should I do? What's the number one thing you teach your people or you would influence your people the way you really are reflective to do in relation to selling? Know who you're pitching. Research the person, research the business. It is our responsibility as a company and as individuals taking a value proposition to a customer who is extremely busy and has all the other things they have to do to contend with to be interesting. That is the, that, those are the two words we, we say here, be interesting. So when we approach someone, we know their annual report. We've identified that there's something in there that aligns to security, a strategic decision to improve the posture of the business's risk and privacy um, and security posture. And we understand that we are calling or reaching out to person X for a specific reason. So yeah, if everyone, if anyone is joining our business, it's their job to be interesting. Love that. Love it. One of the jobs when you start a business as one of the first few joiners is resilience. And I don't. I think if you don't have resilience, don't don't become self-employed. Even if you're working for someone, if you don't have resilience, you're going to struggle as well. I'd like to 
to drill down on resilience on two levels. One is from a business point of view. The other one is from a personal point of view. But so we can choose your own adventure. Which one do you want to go first, business or personal? Mm, I think personal may link straight into business, to be honest. All right, I'm going to paraphrase. After just a few weeks in Australia, I met a few locals who took me out fishing in a tinny just off Snapper Island in far north Queensland. I should say, in a tinny just off Snapper Island, mate, in far north Queensland. <laughs> insert, <laughs> insert swear word, swear word. On the way out, hey, big wave came in, sunk the freaking boat. After an hour of treading water, you were rescued from crocodile-infested waters. Discuss. We met these, um, I'd only been in, as you said, Australia a few weeks or whatever, and I was with my mate. Blair, he's also called Blair. <laughs> we went to the same uni together and we came out and we were staying in Cairns or Cairns, as you lot would, would say. Yeah, Cairns. Cairns, mate. And also a Norwegian, one of my best mates, a Norwegian guy who we met in a hostel there called Hietel. Anyway, we travelled up to the Daintree River and we were hanging around there we were doing whatever we were doing we came across these guys and at that point i would have said they were like stereotypical aussies i was very new to the country they just they had their pig and dogs they had their utes they all they wanted to do was make, make barbecues and they said they said to us oh we'll look after you tonight we had just crossed past at this beach or wherever it was um at Kimber- kimberly just uh, around snapper island and whatever they said they said um we will in the morning we're going out spear fishing and we're going to a place where sadly you know for steve urban passed away and apparently he passed away or a reef around that area and i did look it up afterwards i didn't want to ruin my story but i do believe that was accurate so we go out in this tinny and we didn't question anything about this these guys looked the real deal as far as we were concerned but i do remember i do remember that when we got to this area there had been a newspaper article and it had been about this 14 foot crocodile that had eaten someone's dog on the beach and you know the further you get up queensland and into eventually the, the bigger Northern they Territory, get and the hungrier they get yeah but also you'll start to see signs which will say you know there may be crocodiles in this water to do not turn your back to the water you know do not take pictures of the water well it was a do not take pictures <laughs> with your back turned to the water that was the beach so anyway, we go out and it's about two kilometers roughly, I think, to Snapper Island. Someone can check me on that, but it was enough. And I remember it was this guy, Jake, me, Blair, the other Blair, and Hieto, and then the younger cousin of Jake. And they had their fishing stuff. And I don't even know what we were planning to do when we get out there, to be honest. No life jackets, no nothing. So I remember that we get about halfway out and uh, Jake says, it's getting a little bit choppy. We're taking some water on at the boat. We're probably sitting a little bit lower because there's a, few, there's a couple extra than we would usually take out in this. And we thought, no worries. So the fishing buckets and they're emptying the water out the back. And I'm not joking. We went about 100 metres more and this wave, it wasn't a wave that broke. It was just a swell. It just went like this for anyone that can't see this, just went straight over the top and completely the boat disappeared. And we were sitting in our seating positions, but the boat was gone. And I'm looking at this guy and we're looking and going, so what do you do? Do you swim to the island? Do you swim back? And his face had gone chalk white by this point. And I all of a sudden realized he probably wasn't as real a deal as we suspected. His name was Ken. He was from accounts, getting, from a consulting yeah, firm. hundred yeah. <laughs> percent. He was a pretender. So, um, I knew we may, the adrenaline kind of kicks in and we were a bit naive, to be honest. We didn't really know and who knows how much danger we were actually. And I just know it was at the Daintree River or pretty close to it. 
But I knew that we probably were in trouble because I remember my mate Kettle, he had a um, brand new SLR camera or DSLR camera and he had, he was holding it out of the water. So his arm was up and I just remember him looking at us and his arm just flopped into the water because he couldn't hold it up any longer because it had been like half an hour, 35 minutes. And I went, oh dear. And as I said, some guy was sitting on his, um, on Snapper Island on a balcony having a beer and um, he seen us. Uh, and he, they, they came out and they rescued us. I never really told my mum that story for years. Wow. And the thoughts that would run through your mind, it would be the train. And the train would be the, the GAN that goes from Adelaide to Darwin, multiple carriages. Ka-chung, 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 ka-chung. What did you do to, to stay calm? What did you do to control that monkey mind that could have just totally taken over? I, my own, <laughs> I don't want to make it sound like I was braver than I was. I genuinely think I was a bit naive to that situation as to how what it was actually like. And I think also adrenaline kicked in. Um, we did huddle and we had a, we were, we, we huddled around to make sure that we were kind of floating and we weren't in, in, but I don't know what would have happened or what we would have done if it had started to become really testing. Like if that guy hadn't seen us, we would have either had to have swimmed uh, swam, sorry, to the island, or we would have had to have made the, the route back. I do remember when they rescued us, the boat that I was on, it was too big to push up on the beach. So the guy stood up on the bridge and he's like, it's all clear. There's there's no crocs. So he made me jump back in and swim <laughs> swim back to the beach. After you've been in the water, how long were you treading in the water until you were rescued? We were there for about an hour, treading water. Enough time for crocs to get a sniff. It wasn't great. So I learned my lesson on that. Do not underestimate uh, and probably ask a little bit more qualifying questions, which is a sales lesson. A little bit more due diligence. The guy that looks at the company returns and the industry just jumping in a boat with a bloke named Jake. Good lesson. It's going to be pretty dull, I think, talking about business resilience. Have you got anything to add on business resilience? Or or, no, a better question would be, what has that taught you? Or what, what do you bring? What do you think is important for business resilience? I think there's a couple of things. If you look back to personal, um, I thought you might ask, I wasn't sure if Craig had maybe brought this up as well, but I think one of the things I've spoken to Craig about from a personal perspective, which has pros and cons, but my my dad died at a fairly young age. And I think things like that, and you see that happening, and you know, I, I mentioned at the very beginning there, you know, with a good family, it was kind of stereotypical in terms of, or picturesque in terms of, you know, mum and dad together, they had, you know, paid off their mortgage. They were ready for the next part of their business, eh, sort of their, their life. Um, two sons that were doing their own thing. And that was all kind of cut short. Mm. And, and I how, think how old that, were you when your dad passed away? So I would have been 28 and he was 56. Yeah, that's young. Yeah, so he was young and he was really, you know, he, was, he had a good life. So I think one of the things that that gives you perspective about in the context of resilience is that at least relative to my life, the challenges that you experience to a certain extent are not as difficult as that particular scenario. So I think that while that can mean that you can be quite stubborn and around what's happening in in life and just kind of charging forward because it's not as bad as some of that stuff, you have to be careful of that. But I definitely think there is a chunk of, I was always quite a resilient person, but I definitely think seeing some of the things associated with that and just putting things into perspective, which is a little bit cliche, but I don't have any doubt that that actually kind of was like, well, what's the worst that can happen with this particular challenge, provided I can 
coach or be coached and educated and learn from people to do the best thing in the interest of the business and my career and then navigate the challenges that I have to. So I don't I don't know if that makes sense. A bit kind of contrived think trying to put no, those it's, things it's together. Not, it's not cliche. I'm gonna correct you. I'm gonna pull you up on that. Because it's not what happens to you. It's how you process that. It's how you deal with that. It's how you get up from that. COVID in your industry, or industry, our combined startup worlds, it's leveled so many startups. And you know, at the time of recording, the funding market has dried up compared to what it was you know, six, 12 months ago. A number of businesses are hemorrhaging. And there's opportunities out there. Businesses will still thrive. You have to adapt. So yeah, I, I go back to Victor Frank, Victor Frankel, man search for meaning. When he was in a, a, a Nazi concentration camp, they can take everything away from me, but they can't take my dignity. That was one of the first real times we looked at that whole construct of self-efficacy or meaning. So I, I absolutely believe you have learnt to adapt to the situation, and no matter what happens, you can really adapt to how you respond and the training you've done both consciously and subconsciously growing up has helped helped you in those situations and will help you as you continue to grow the business. Yeah, I don't have any doubt that all of that is a combination, especially, you know, raising capital in this market. We've just done an up round, which is against the grain in the technology market. And there's locked into that in terms of resilience. You know, a hundred people will tell you no for varieties of reasons. And many of them is because they don't even understand your industry, never mind your business. So to be able to, as a team, execute against another funding round when there is so much negative press around um, a funding round for a positive reason, it was the next phase of our growth that was scheduled in an up round. And to get that and to bring the first professional money into the business from venture capitalists is, is a massive sign that that resilience is not just coming from, I suppose, me. But it's also something that somehow we've been able to ingrain into a lot of the team members as well, because you know they have to be resilient in their own right to represent the company in its best light. Well, there is individual resilience and there's organisational resilience. And, and you teach that. You can teach that. And you can teach the opposite of that. You can teach organisational sinking or you know, everyone just looks at problems and a problem focus. So absolutely the way you all lead you lead loud on that, your employees will be resilient as well. What's the vision? Are you wanting to ride off into the sunset in a bigger boat, not with a guy named Jake, <laughs> but uh. by getting a big multinational to come and just give you zeros? Or are you wanting to you know, build something, insert, insert, insert? Definitely build something. There'll be an outcome of that sort like everybody talks about it from a, a capitalistic perspective that is the nature of business that you're going to grow it and it's a profitable business um and at some stage maybe there'll be or there'll be some sort of exit event of course we're raising money um the investors expect there'll be an, an exit event at some stage i don't think you get to that by thinking about the zeros that you're going to earn and i've not really been wired like that historically i am much more interested in building something that actually provides value to a client, you know, secures users, secures businesses. And we always talk, Craig and I, it's funny, Craig got me into this, actually. I remember when we used to bring people into the business in their first interviews, and Craig would be like, when you leave Daltrey, we want you to be better than when you started Daltrey. And I'm like, it's their induction meeting. And they you're haven't talking even about, started yet. They yeah. haven't even started yet. But he was so right because, and I've really adopted this, and I suppose I thought the same, but I just maybe didn't say it. 
But anyway, I've adopted this because what I really think now is that Daltrey is a platform for people to really excel in their professional ambitions. And at the same time, they should do it in such a way that it doesn't absolutely destroy the communities, the planet and the environment and everything else. And also provides that core outcome to the clients, which is securing them um, in a safe and, and, and in a safe way. So to answer your question, the vision is to do that, is to is to to realize it's not a new vision, it's to realize the one and the part of the journey that we're already on right now. The business is at an inflection point. We've got amazing references. The brand's amazing. The team member's amazing. We've got a, a significant amount of momentum, but it's at that inflection point where we have to really achieve that pathway to penetration across the target markets, which we have. And obviously, we're feeling extremely confident about that. Exciting. I can feel the energy, but it's a calm energy and a calm focus. So I really do look forward to watching the story, watching the growth and uh, connecting up one time face to face as well. We might move to that next channel of communication, have a coffee in a couple of months and talk about our collective ventures of growing and scaling. But before we do that, let's do the mad minute. I'm going to ask you a whole bunch of questions. Wiz is going to put the timer on for us. Uh, just the first word that comes to your mind. If you stall, I'll just go, eh, we'll go to the next one. Are you ready? Do you, do you want to do some <laughs> state management or are you good to go? No, I'm good to go. Let's see what this brings. All right, let's go. Number one, favourite song? Uh, we Lost Dancing. It's the one that I just heard from a guy called Fred again. Favourite movie? I love Lord of the Rings. Oh, favorite book or quote? I love his Dark Materials trilogy. It's got a big place in my heart from my childhood. Okay. Favorite possession? I love my Millican backpack. It's the best bag because it's went with me in so many places and I've got so many fond memories. So it came to my head first. So there you go. True. Favorite food? I love a curry. What time do you wake up and go to bed? I'm a very good rhythm in this. Sometimes I wake up at six o'clock, but sometimes I go to bed at midnight, so that can kind of impact. <laughs> uh, following on from that, do you or do you not have a morning routine? I do have a morning routine that involves a coffee and a meditation. Um, it should involve exercise, but I have to be honest, it doesn't always get in there. Favourite productivity tip? Have a morning routine. Most vivid childhood memory? I loved going on um, holiday with my parents to a place called Porta Polenza. Time's up. We've got a few more to wrap it up. What did you want to be when you grow up? I wanted to be a fighter pilot. Biggest adversity faced in life so far? Funding a cybersecurity company. What are you most proud of? A cybersecurity company. Daltrey. Awesome. Good answers. Uh, last question I've got. It's a bit of a flip. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like me to ask you or is there anything you would like to ask me? No, I think uh, you've covered everything that I would bring up. The only one that I might, uh, that might have asked about was the, the personal stuff because I, uh, the, the crocodile story probably didn't bring out the most logic, the, the connection I would have taken to the professional stuff. So that one I'd have said, maybe you want to ask me that. But for you, I would ask you, why do you do this? Oh, I don't know anything else. From, from when I was young, I was an athlete, shifted into coaching, as I've always hovered between staying fit, inspiring others to be fit, shifted from body to brain uh, with a degree in psychology after an exercise phys degree and then realised we're not ahead on a stick. You can't compartmentalise. It's all of it. And even after doing this for decades, I still love it. I love when I 
do an interview with you as a founder of Biometric, thinking, where is this going to go? And we get into mental skills and mindfulness and meditation. Every day you learn, every day you get stretched and, and get to meet great people. So I, I can't imagine doing anything else. And I was asked this a mate by a mate a few weeks ago. He said, look, if you sell this for zeros and, and you know, you're financially independent, what will you do? I said, I'll do a podcast, I'll do some speaking, I'll write books and you know, hang out with some great athletes and do mental skills. But I'd do it at a less intense level i do um i do think that's important the financial freedom part but i think from my perspective and like it's about being able to do other things which have impact like that stuff around the the guidance to the younger generations which are coming out and maybe don't get the exposure you know if there, there is that exit event and i do get that freedom as a result when our team members do because everyone has esop in here then I think that's the real motivator after you've built something. It's to then build something else. And your physiology, your chemistry changes when you talk about that. You, you light up to a different level. Now you, you light up when you're talking about the business, but you go on a different level when you talk about that. So that, that's, that's cool. If you can link that to your business, that's awesome. Working on it. I think the B Corp will be the framework. It's just about making sure we represent all of the things which our teams are passionate about. But when I get like a, a real solid baseline of buy-in to impact uh, that represents all of us. We've got 12 nationalities in the company, right? All sorts of different cultures and things like that. And then eventually build out to the real nuanced pieces of the puzzle, which we can do when the business becomes sustained. Uh, it can sustain more and more programs. Now for people to follow your journey, where's the best place to connect with you? The guy in his mid-30s, he doesn't do social media. Who are you? But if people do want to connect with you, or follow you, where, where should they go? All right, so you can get me on the Identity Day podcast. You can find it in all of the Spotify, um, Apple, or your favorite podcast distribution service. And we'll also stink, stick the uh, link to my LinkedIn in the show notes, if that's okay. Awesome. I've really enjoyed today. It's been It's been a surprise it, it, with some of the areas we've gone, and I'm impressed with the work you've done to be ready for the opportunities that you've already nailed and the opportunities that are coming ahead. So I commend you. And, and I do want you to do the homework for me. Listen back and listen to some of those threads. And for people listening to this, I think it's a really good idea. When opportunities show up, you do the work. I mentioned that as a construct on confidence. It's one, doing the work and two, backing yourself. And you exude confidence, not in the, I think we're taught the arrogant American way, you know, just walking with the shoulders up. It's a, it's a calm, comfortable confidence. It's been awesome to be in the show. Thank you very much for having me. Really enjoyed the chat and absolutely we'll see you face to face because uh, I think we've both earned it. We've earned it. Early, right, we've earned it. That. Cheers, man. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you. Hey, it's Andrew and we hope you enjoyed that episode. We would really appreciate it if you helped us amplify the Strive Stronger with Andrew May podcast by sharing episodes with colleagues and friends and going to iTunes and leaving a rating and review. This really does help us get this message out to a wider audience. And if you would like to know more about how Strive Stronger uplifts teams through optimizing human performance and well-being, make sure you check out strivestronger.com. And if you'd like to know more about my personal practice, focusing on all things human performance, go to andrewmade.com where you can explore the books I have written, including MatchFit, which has now sold over 85,000 copies, or book me as a speaker at your next annual conference or company offsite. Or if you'd like to really turbocharge your business and personal success and wake up to a better way of living, 
working and leading, check out my brand new evidence-based Human Performance Academy that starts in July. I'm really, really looking forward to getting that going. And if you'd like to receive regular updates from me each month, make sure you subscribe to my monthly e-newsletter, the AM edition.